I started a sermon on the complaint of God in the book of Malachi. It's an eight-point sermon. And because y'all are so interested in getting out at 12, I could only get four points in. So I want to finish that tonight. I want to go back and do a little review because I think it's really necessary. Some of us were not here this morning. The book of Malachi is a book, as G. Campbell Morgan says, that the message of Malachi most perfectly fits the modern day of any of the minor prophets. In other words, it's as fresh now as it was then. It begins with this marvelous claim of God. I have loved you. And that's the burden of the prophecy. And everything that's seen, that, that's in the book of Malachi is to be understood in light of that. It is a picture of the perpetual nature of God. And it is what Morgan calls the wail of wounded love. But immediately God turns from the claim to the complaint and he indicts because he does love us with an unconditional, perpetual love. He will not look away from our sin. And he will not wink at or ignore our sin. Because he wants to bless us. And if he deals, we deal with him honestly with our sin. And deal with that sin in a way that it is pardoned and removed then God is free to bless. That's what He wants to do. He wants to send revival to a church. And He wants to come upon this community in power and in holy blessing. And so He points out by indictment the sin that wounds His love. And the first sin as we are complaint that we noticed this morning is the complaint of profanity. Now, it's not what, you know, you think normally, somebody using God's name in vain in the sense of cursing, you know. He said, this is the profanity that, that I despise. It's to call me father and give me no honor, to call me master and give me no fear, no respect. Verse 6 of chapter 1. It is the profanity that takes place in church when we sing wonderful words of life and don't mean it. When we pray prayers, we don't mean. When we preach sermons, we don't mean, really. It's the, it's the profanity of taking God's name, but without a sense of urgency, of calling Him Lord, but not offering our life to Him. That is the complaint of God. You think He has a complaint? The second complaint was the complaint of sacrilege. It's the bringing to the altar of God the lame and the sick and the blind when the law explicitly requires that the sacrifice be without spot or blemish the finest of the flock. They lost a sense of worship. And in order to protect the image, they forgot about the essence. They wanted to offer something to God. They just didn't want it to cost them anything. And so they brought the lame and the sick and the blind there are two implications of that. One is, is that it means that we're happy to give to God that which 
is of no value to us and therefore requires no sacrifice of us. And the second implication is that it means it, it reflects on what we really think about God because he said you take this offering that you offer to me and you offer it to your governor and see what he thinks about you. And what it suggests is that we're willing to offer to God what we'd be shamed to offer anybody else. There's the complaint of greed. And this is a kind of a subtle complaint found in verse 10. Barclay suge uh, Morgan suggests that what he's talking about in verse 10 is that, that, that people serve God for what they can receive from God so that the ulterior motive is that I want to serve God if it, if it comes back to me in reward. But you cut me off from reward. You stop paying me. See how long I serve. And then the final one, and the heaviest of all, I think, it was, the, was found in verse 13. It was the, the complaint of a misplaced reality where we replace reality with ritual. It's done all the time. It's replacing, it's, it's allowing the mechanics of a dead religion to replace the meaning of a living faith and to assume that all God's interested in is the ritual. And so we magnify the ritual, and there is no communication. There is no personal relationship with God. Does he have a complaint? Well, that leads us now, that brings us to this, last part of this. Now, I have a real burden tonight about this uh, revival meeting for several reasons. One is that I know personally the evangelist, He's kind of a young man growing up uh, learning how to preach in this church in Fort Worth, a student there. I want very much that it be such that he'll have freedom to preach in power. I know he's a great preacher. He preached for me in my pulpit several times. I have a great burden in the second place because I feel in these important times that you and I live in and the critical nature of our time. That we, that we desperately need a revival. And thirdly, I'm concerned about it because I think that it perhaps as, as, as no other time in the 10 years I'm pastor here, we need revival in this church. All right, so I want to deal with the fifth complaint, God's found in verse, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 3 of Malachi. Chapter 2, 17 chapter 3 verse 3 all the way down through you have wearied the Lord with your words yet you say how have we wearied him in that you say everyone who does evil in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or where is the God of justice behold now in the Hebrew and the Greek Bible to both. There are no chapter divisions. So we, we make chapter divisions. We made them when we translated the scriptures. So without a division, chapter division, he moves to verse 1. Same thought. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek. He's saying this tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, 
Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. And He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings that are in righteousness, that are worthy to receive. All right, second, third, well, fifth complaint, first tonight. <laughs> fifth complaint is the complaint of a, the diminishing emphasis or the diminishing concern about sin our own sin, our personal sin. Now notice what he's saying. What's happening here is this, that God is, that they're saying God as a God of love, he's already claimed his love for us. Now a God of love is not going to judge us for our sin. And it's an attempt to excuse it or to countenance it. It's an idea to gloss over evil and treat it lightly as of no importance. And what he's saying is this, God delights in you, you know, whether you have sin in your life or not. You're God's favorite people and God's not going to, going to judge your sin. A man told me that one time. He said, God understands me. He knows that I'm a weak person. He knows that I'm... I'm prone to sin. It doesn't matter to him that I sin. He said, you preachers are the only people who get worked up over that. God's not that concerned about my sin. He understands me as a son. It's the attempt to, to pass over sin and deal with it lightly, especially our own. Now watch this carefully. When a person begins to gloss, gloss over sin and treat it as insignificant and unimportant, he is lowering the standard of divine government. And the moment a man does that within the church, he is guilty of fragrant high treason against the government of God because God doesn't treat sin lightly. And he's not going to turn his back on our sin and ignore it. As a matter of fact, the very fact that God loves you is the guarantee he will not ignore your sin. And the more you love a man or, or the God who created mankind, the more you hate the things that destroy it, right? And the moment you assume, the moment that God turns His back on your sin and does not see it as destructive and devastating in nature, the moment God looks upon your sin as unimportant and insignificant is the moment God stops loving you. Now suppose in the morning you went into your baby and your baby was in a crib and in that crib was a poisonous snake and during the night that snake had, had 
bitten your child and the child was lifeless and cold and dead and the snake was curled up in the crib, what would you do with the snake? Would you cuddle the snake to your breast and stroke it and make it your pet? No, you would fling the snake violently against the wall and with every ounce of your energy destroy that which has destroyed the one you love. The problem with the church as I see it is that far too long we have treated sin as insignificant and all the time it works its destruction. Now this is what Habakkuk says. He said you better be careful when you pray for revival to come because when his messenger comes you're not going to like what he does, what he's going to do when he gets here. Because he's going to come as a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He's going to come to purify and to purge. He's not coming to say, oh, okay, your sins are forgiven, it's all right. He's coming like a refiner's fire and lye soap the most abrasive kind of soap. And he say, you're not going to like it when he comes because when he comes, he's going to put you in the fire until all the impurities out and he's going to put you in the soap until all the impurity is cleansed because he cannot have that in your life. Now listen to me carefully. Revival happens when Either you deal with your sin or God does. And I can promise you that if you deal with your sin and honestly deal with it so that it's offered up to God, it's a whole lot easier than when God has to come and deal with it. I can remember as a kid listening to the preacher preach from Isaiah 6 I had this preacher, he loved to preach hellfire and brimstone, boy. I'm, I'm not sure that that's the way it ought to be done, but I remember thinking he was going to call my name. You know, I just knew he was going to call my name. He, he just, boy, he'd get with it. One night he was preaching on Isaiah 6, and he talked about that angel, that cherubim, coming down and taking that live coal from the altar and going over to where Isaiah was and putting it on his lips. And I could just see Isaiah, you know, on, on, the, on the floor writhing in anguish and pain because I'd had a few things, you know. I mean, that's a sensitive spot, you know, right there at your lip. And I could imagine that when that happened, Isaiah must have screamed in, in pain. And what Isaiah 6 tells us is this, that in order for sin to be dealt with effectively, it has to be dealt with drastically. He's coming like a refiner's fire and a full of soap because he doesn't, he's not happy when we have sin in our life. All right, second complaint. The second complaint is found in the 13th verse of chapter 2. 
chapter 2, verse 13. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You cry out because God turns away from you. You ever felt like that? Yet you say, for what reason? Why have you turned your back on me? Why don't you hear me when I pray? Here it is. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offering, offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. It's the complaint of a dishonorable home. It doesn't get easier, folks. Now listen up, gang. It doesn't get easier. Now before I say what I want to say, I want to mention a couple of things. About seven, as a matter of fact. Number one, did you know that only 7% of Americans today live in what we call the normal home where the husband is the breadwinner and the wife is the homemaker? 750,000 children this very night live in foster homes and residential facilities, institutions and mental hospitals. Four out of every ten children in America live in a broken home. Eighteen million children currently are living with step-parents. Between seven and fourteen million children will become alcoholics. Six, sixty-five out of every one thousand children between the ages of seven and eleven already have had psychiatric care. One million girls will become pregnant between the ages of 12 and 17. One child in five uses drugs twice a week. And the suicide rate is staggering among children. 10 to 15% of children in America have already tried to kill themselves. What is happening to this country? I was listening to something last night, I don't even remember what it was on the radio. And I remember turning away and going down the hall to my room thinking, what is happening to our world? And it is, a, it is basic in the nature of human life that every generation begins where the preceding generation has placed it. And we just can't keep placing every generation lower and lower and lower and not suffer the consequences. Now there's a whole sermon to be preached on this, but since Malachi is talking only to the husband, I just want to do that. The rest of you can take a break. Well, stay in here, but... 
Now I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture with me. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. All of you turn and the guys listen up. It seems to me that if revival comes, it'll come when the men of this church get serious about their relationship at home. Verse 7 of chapter 3, 1 Peter. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as, a weaker, as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor. Now, the reason I've chosen this verse is that that verse, that word honor, is the, in the, is the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew word that's found in the complaint of God in Malachi. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers, what? Be not hindered. Three implications here. Three ways to love your wife, men. One, with consideration. He said that we are to love her according to knowledge is the King James or in the New American Standard in an understanding way. It means to be sensitive and considerate. How many women say, he is so insensitive to me. He's, he doesn't understand me. He doesn't know what I feel. He doesn't understand my hurt. And I was reading a sports page today, and how it got on a sports page, I don't know, but it was in Scatter Shooting by old uh, Blackie Sherrod. He has this little, and he has his neighbor Jones. He says, my neighbor Jones says that by the time you get to where you understand your wife, you couldn't care less. Well, the fact is that we, it is a tragedy that we get to the place where we don't care. All right, secondly, there is, we are to love her with chivalry. He says, as with a weaker vessel, that is, to care for her because she is weaker physically and with communication in the deep things of life. And he says, so that your prayers be not hindered. And what he's talking about there is that, that there ought to be such communion that you commune in the deepest part of life. I was talking... Uh, to my guys at noon on Friday and I mentioned something like this that one of the things I enjoy is seeing you know young people getting to know one another and I've noticed several of you have gotten to know one another really well and you and you you're working on it <laughs> and I I see them kind of getting they like each other and they start sitting by one another and you know what I've noticed noticed they talk incessantly I mean in church and out of church and they talk to them, they, they never run out of anything to say. And they get on the phone. Sound familiar? You tried to call me anytime lately at night? And they get on the phone and they talk and, 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 and they, they just have so much to say. they all ears. And then they get married. You ever notice that? And you can go into a restaurant and just sit in a restaurant and you can tell who's married and who's not. I mean, there'll be this couple sitting over there and they'll just be talking and smiling and, and he'll reach over and, you know, and he'll touch her and they'll just talk and smile and you can look across there and there'll be this other couple. They eat in silence. They're just, they're eating in silence 
occasionally they'll grunt at one another. And, and, and after I did this on Friday noon, a guy told me, he said, you know what, we went out to eat at Wyatt's and I just did what she was talking about. He said there was this couple next. He said they were just sitting there. And he said, we just watched them. And they sat there the whole time and never said a word. And said just before they left, he said, I guess it was that she said he ready to go because he kind of nodded his head and they got up and went. <laughs> All right, third complaint from tonight's lesson. Doesn't get any easier. Chapter 3, verse 8. <clears throat> Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? He answers in tithes and offerings. Now, I, I have a feeling that you didn't come to church tonight expecting a sermon on tithing. You probably didn't even think about the fact that God will never bless a church that steals from Him. may not have thought about that. You may not have thought about the fact that God cannot bless a church when the church does not tithe. You ever thought about that? And some of the greatest revivals I've ever heard about were revivals that occurred when, when, the, when the emphasis was called stewardship revival, when they used to have those. Now we have nobody comes. <laughs> they have stewardship revivals. And revival would break out because when people get honest with God in the stewardship of their possessions, God's free to say, well, I can trust them with my spiritual blessing." because they've been faithful in my physical. You see what I'm saying? Now your question might be, it's, the question is not will a man rob God, but how can he rob God? I mean, it's not going to be that easy to stick a gun up in the face of God and say, give me your money. Well, how, what do we, how can we rob God? Well, let's look at the word rob there. It's the only time it's used in the Bible. And the root of that word is the word Jacob, strangely enough. You know Jacob, the man? Now, if you want to talk about a treacherous, conniving, defrauding man, you use Jacob because he was deceitful and conniving. He was, somebody said, as crooked as a corkscrew. He, he, was, he was a schemer. Now, really, the word means to circumvent and the best way to, to translate the word is not to rob, but to embezzle. Will a man embezzle from God? Now, when I go down here with a pistol to the Easy Mart, don't, I'm not planning on doing it, but if I go down to the Easy Mart with a pistol and I put that pistol in the face of the clerk's hand and say, give me your money, I'm taking money that I have no right to handle. But when I embezzle something, I'm taking money that I do have a right to handle. As a matter of fact, I have been given to handle. And the Bible says that God has given us all things. So that He places at our disposal and for our stewardship these possessions that you and I enjoy, and we are free to handle them. And, we, and, and, and when we are not faithful in the tithing of those 
possessions, we're embezzling from Him. We're taking from God that which we have a right to handle. Now, when I take a pistol and go down to the Easy Mart and stick it in the cashier's face, I might know, not know that cashier from Adam. Never seen her before. But I know God. Now, watch this carefully. When I rob God in the use of my stewardship or the lack thereof, I'm not only taking something that I have been given to handle, but I am taking from a friend. And it's not only embezzling, it's the violation of a trust and a friendship. See? And revival comes when we get serious about this. One last thing. I think it's high time to quit. It's the sin of blasphemy. And it's found in verses 13 and 14, chapter 3. Look at this. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? You have said... It is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept His charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord hosts? Now let me tell you what's happening in this, then we're through. The word blasphemy means to speak injuriously against someone. That is, to say something that injures someone against whom you've spoken it. We would call it slander today. And uh, when you slander somebody, you're liable to them. Now, did these people actually say slanderous words against God? Did they actually say words that injured God? No, they didn't. Well, you see, the, the person who stands on a street corner and and rails against God with injurious words, blasphemous words, is not nearly as dangerous as the influence. Watch, listen carefully. Not nearly as dangerous as the influence of a life that contradicts our profession. It's called hypocrisy, just to be honest with you. Now, I'm not very smart, and I haven't lived as long as some of you have. But I have observed something over the years, and it's this. That one Christian's inconsistency in the way he lives does more harm than ten revival sermons will ever repair. And what has hurt the cause of Christ has not been the, the alien outside the church who has all this negative stuff to say about God. I, I'm not, I don't feel that threatened by those folks. What has hurt the cause of Christ is all of this profession that goes on inside the church and has no practice outside the church. Now that's heavy, and I know it, but it's the truth. And I've had 
tons of young people, maybe not so many adults, but tons of young people who have said to me, well, it doesn't make sense to me that we come down to church and we say all that stuff and we pray all those prayers and we give all those testimonies and then we go out and, they, and we live the same as everybody else. Did you pray this prayer? Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus is seen in me. Two things I'd like for you to do tonight, gang. Number one, to be willing to renounce ultimate dependence on everything outside of yourself beyond God. You hear me? Renounce dependence on everything outside of yourself beyond God. And secondly, renounce ultimate dependence on every internal resource except God. do it tonight. Let's pray. Father, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me, all of his passion and purity. O thou Savior divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now in the spirit of prayer, would you look here? There are three invitations. We talked about these in the counseling session a while ago, getting our counselors ready, prepared for revival. The question is, are you sure that if you were to die tonight, you'd go to heaven? Can you point to a time in your life where you invited Jesus into your heart? And you renounced dependence upon every external thing beyond God and trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone. You can do that tonight. You can breathe this prayer, Lord Jesus, I invite you into my heart. I want you to be my Savior and Lord. Would you do that now if you've never done it? Second invitation is for you to come and unite with this church. If you've been saved and you're a member somewhere else and you feel God leading you here, you just come and say, we want to, I want to be a part of this church. Or you, it may be that some of you tonight want to begin to let Jesus be the Lord of your life and you need to take some steps to commit your life totally to Him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.